Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight, we say farewell to a friend. Dr. Jason Kinderchuk is now focusing on monkeypox. Also, think you can eat all you want and exercise it off or eat healthy and not exercise? An expert weighs in. And who is getting abortions? If you're thinking teenagers, you are so wrong. Just who gets them might surprise you. And why is sexual health education such a taboo in highly religious countries? A sex health educator explains. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. We've got lots to talk about tonight on the program, but there is one little moment of sadness that I would like to discuss first. Um, for nearly two years, the esteemed Dr. Jason Kinderchuk, scientist, epidemiologist, studies emerging and re-emerging viruses, he works out of the University of Manitoba, has been a tremendous contributor to this program. He's provided us with so much education, knowledge, information. He has been relentless in his pursuit of getting appropriate information out to the listeners. And for that, I, and I'm sure you have been so grateful, but as I have mentioned many times on the show in the past, Dr. Kinderchuk studies emerging and re-emerging viruses. And if you have uh, noticed recently, there is an emerging virus and that is monkeypox. And that is what is going to be taking up most of his time. He's sitting on monkeypox committees and international collaborations. He is actually uh, doing research in that area, um, setting up protocols, working with the World Health Organization, global monkeypox uh, committees. And um, he has going to be shifting his focus over to another virus that needs his attention. So we've taken a little time to, we'd like to take a little time to honor the contributions, although it's impossible to do so, um, but to try and honor the contributions that Dr. Kinderchuk has provided to the program. And with the assistance of Leo, my fine tech producer, we've put this little montage together. So here we go. Have a listen. And now, Maureen's Health Headline. a voice that you have heard many times before. Dr. Jason Kinderchuk is assistant professor in the Department of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases at the University of Manitoba and holds a Canada research chair in the molecular pathogenesis of emerging and re-emerging viruses. He is also advancing the research in COVID-19. Thank goodness. Good evening, Dr. Kinderchuk, who joins me on the line. Good evening, Maureen. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing all right. I look at where we're, you know, about five or six days away from uh, from making our move back to Winnipeg after being in Saskatoon for a year. So, you know, kind of a, a rough time to be to be going back to the province. Um, but, it, you know, it, it's tough. I mean, certainly, uh, I think watching the trends uh, in Manitoba, you know, kind of the, the worst case scenario is well upon the province. And, um, you know, the, the unfortunate reality is I think there's a lot of fingers that are going to be pointed back and forth. Um, but we've got to get through this. And uh, I, I think we have to put some of that aside to try and figure out uh, how to save some lives and, and uh, save the long-term health of some people that, uh, that are going to end up in the hospital over the next few weeks. Can you believe we are where we are? 
it's, it's frustrating, right? So, you know, I think the, the, the issue is that we kind of, we maybe get into this idea of looking at the pandemic as if this is something, you know, we've seen before with influenza and, and, you know, we kind of base our assumptions based on that as far as when it should end and what it should look like. Problem is, is I think very much we are at this point where we have to throw that out the window. Certainly, if we've learned anything through COVID, it's that we can't necessarily anticipate what is going to come down the pike uh, within a couple of weeks' time or a couple of months' time. And that's the frustrating part. I think people are getting tired of that aspect. And then, of course, we, we also see the light at the end of the tunnel, which is the vaccines have worked amazingly well. Now we're seeing that, oh, wait a second, we have a contingent of people that do not want to get vaccinated. And we are at that cusp where you know, that could actually make or break the difference between us being able to get complete control over this or, or be battling this onwards for, for the coming months. So I, I think you're seeing that with everybody, and, and certainly the, the frustration is, uh, is palpable. He doesn't do Facebook research, and he's on the line. Good evening, Dr. Kindrachuk. <laughs> Good evening, Maureen. How are you? You know what? We've watched the Paw Patrol movie, I think, four times, maybe five <laughs> times this weekend. And I'm, I'm just going to say for the record, I think I enjoyed it as much as my three-year-old has. Isn't so, that nice? <laughs> uh, it's, 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 been, it's been relaxing to, to a certain extent. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, well, uh, I'm glad to know that you are a bona fide researcher. I was actually just taken away, uh, blown away when my patient said, you know, in all seriousness, she had done her Facebook research. And I thought, I mean, there's probably a lot of people out there doing Facebook research, especially when it comes to the coronavirus and the vaccines. Yeah, you know, I, I just did, a, you know, basically a vaccine uh, information panel this afternoon for, for the Ukrainian uh, Canadian Congress. And it, it is one of these things where, you know, we, we're looking at people and trying to point them in the right direction uh, for for getting information, but you know, a lot of people do go to really where the easiest sources are, and and it has become difficult to uh, you know try and coach people on on what is you know good valid information from uh, you know from from just misinformation. So it's you know it's going to be a constant battle force. I don't think we're going to be able to move back away from where we are now. I think the best we can do is is to try and and change the narrative. Joining me on the line once again is the world-famous Dr. Jason Kindrachuk. He studies uh, out of the University of Manitoba. He studies emerging and re-emerging viruses. Thank goodness we have him here most Sunday nights to talk about and answer your questions about COVID-19 and, and the latest and greatest on how we can stay healthy and safe. Good evening, Dr. Kindrachuk. Good evening. I hope you're using air quotes when you said world famous, by the way, just, just as a sidebar. <laughs> never, never. Are you kidding? <laughs> They're asking me about you all over the world. <laughs> Thanks for being on the program once again. Uh, I mean, we say it every week. I wonder what's going to be new next week. <laughs> and uh, what's new is yeah. new, <laughs> I guess, which has been found in Toronto a new variant, MU. Uh, how frightened should we be about that or how concerned? What's, what's the deal on MU? Yeah, you know what? I think this is one of these cases, again, where, listen, we, we picked up a variant of interest. It's been designated as such. It, it has some, you know, some, some properties that certainly have lined up with, uh, with what we've seen with other variants of concern in, in regards to mutations. But we haven't seen it 
actually do a lot of the things that uh, that, that we you know, would normally be concerned about. So it's taken over in, in Colombia and Ecuador, uh, although in Colombia it seems to have plateaued in regards to the proportion of new cases that are being reported. Uh, it certainly has made its way into other countries across the globe, but it's not out-competing Delta. And I think that's that's really the biggest thing that we have to take away from this, is that you know, in order for a new variant to survive, it has to be more fit. It has to out-compete what's already circulating. And Delta is kind of like the big silverback for uh, for all the variants right now. And it's going to take a lot to displace that. So I, we're watching it. But honestly, I you know, Delta continues to be the thing that we need to be worried about. He's an amazing person. He is Dr. Jason Kinderchuk. Thanks so much for joining me on the line, Dr. Kinderchuk, and for all your great work. <laughs> Good evening, Maureen, from uh, from actually the lab tonight. Oh, fantastic. Wow. Um, <laughs> if only this were uh, on TV, <laughs> this show, <laughs> exactly. we could get a look in. Um, but it's great. <laughs> I love people who do work with vulnerable communities or, or people in vulnerable communities because I, I think there's so much that we need to do to help others so that we can heal uh, as, a, as a generation, as a world. Um, really. Uh, will we ever heal from this pandemic, though? <laughs> Is it ever going to be over? If it's not one thing, it's another. And currently we have this race of the vaccine against the variants, which are concerning for me. How concerning are they for you, Dr. Kinderchuk? Yeah, it's certainly concerning, right? And I think when we look back on this, you know, really from the start of December, when we started to get some of the information coming in from the UK uh, about their experience with B117, and then, of course, what we saw in South Africa, B1351, and and the Brazil experience with T1, you know, we've been nervous for, for a few months. And I think you know, you kind of heard the voices continually saying, we need to be prepared, we need to be wary, we need to be proactive about the variants. Um, and lo and behold, here we are. And it's, it's concerning. I think that, you know, the, the vaccines have held up very well against the variants. The problem is, is that we can't basically defeat the virus just with vaccination alone. And that's what makes this so difficult is we still need people uh, and, and governments uh, across the country uh, really stepping up and, and making the right decisions. Here, joining us on the line to tell us Give us some hope to uh, understand what our future looks like, especially in terms of therapeutic treatments and, and other, um, other important aspects like vaccines is none other than Dr. Jason Kinderchuk, Assistant Professor, Canada Research Chair, Department of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases, Max Rady College of Medicine, Rady Faculty of Health Sciences, University of Manitoba, of course, and his research interest lies in emerging and re-emerging viruses. And this virus has emerged with a plum. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Kinderchuk. How are you doing, Maureen? <laughs> yeah, um, you know, it, it certainly is complicated, right? And I say that as, you know, it, it's just, just, a, it just a virologist. I'm not, I'm not a public health expert. But um, what, what do you do? We're, we're faced with, you know, really a, a pandemic within a pandemic with the variant. Dr. Kinderchuk, thank you so much, as usual, for joining me. It's always a pleasure. Thanks, Lori. Oh, we're going to certainly going to miss Dr. Jason Kinderchuk. He has just worked tirelessly most Sunday nights for the last couple of years to raise our awareness, help us out, 
keep us safe, help to keep us safety and provide accurate, appropriate, evidence-based information. And I am certainly grateful for that. And uh, as we say, farewell to a colleague and a good friend. Very excited about this next segment, these next couple of segments, and you should be too, because it may lead to you living longer. Joining me on the line from Vancouver, British Columbia is Anna Reimer. She is the owner and operator at Anna Be Fit. Good evening, Anna. Hi, Maureen. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. How are you? Thanks so much for joining me. Oh, you're welcome. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. I wanted to talk to you first about this recent study in the British Journal of Sports Medicine that found people who exercise regularly while eating a high-quality diet reduce their mortality risk from all causes by 17%. They also reduce their risk of dying from heart disease by 19% and from certain cancers by 27%. The reason this study is significant is because many people think I can eat all the Big Macs I want. I can go to Taco Bell. I can eat out five guys, the whole thing, because I'm just going to exercise later. I'm just going to ride my bike, or I'm just going to swim, or I'm just going to go for a run. Or by the same token, people who eat a um, you know very high-quality diet decide not to exercise. And so this study actually pointed out the importance of both diet and exercise for people, especially as it relates to longevity. What are your thoughts on that? What do you see from your clients and and what is the best approach? Super interesting article from my perspective, being in health and, and wellness for decades and as a nutritionist and a fitness professional and a former gym owner. So it's really cool to see this kind of stuff. I've been saying for probably 20 years that um, 80% of your results will come from nutrition alone. In fact, my five-year-old will often say abs are made in the kitchen and I'm like, oh gosh. So, um, <laughs> But it's absolutely true. You can't out-exercise a poor diet. So, and there's a, there's a mindset component there also where, you know, the, if you're, if you're exercising, you're having endorphins flowing, so you're less stressed, so you're able to clear cortisol, adrenaline, which let's face it, in today's society, we need all of the anti-stressors we can humanly possibly get, um, because those contribute to long-term disease and illness. And to speak to your point, actually, heart disease is one of those that, um, is, is hugely impacted by, uh, stressors, stressors. So as women, I, I'm mostly my, the majority of my practice is focused on women's nutrition. That is my specialty food. And I've chosen that as a specialty because it has 80% of the oomph in the whole, you know, wellness, you know, between the health and wellness of, of exercise versus nutrition. Now, I also believe that mindset has a good percentage in there as well. But, um, yeah, the the exercise, that's very common too. People are saying, well, it's okay, I'll just run an extra 5K, I'll do an extra 20 minutes in the gym tomorrow. But what they're not understanding is that all of these, you know, 
bad fats, we'll just kind of keep it really basic for the, the viewers or the listeners. Um, the bad fats are going to accumulate in your arteries. And for a real life example, because I like to bring real life so people can relate to something relatable. Like my own father was a professional tennis player and he had a six pack and it was super fit, played tennis four hours a day and dropped dead on the tennis court of coronary artery disease. And nobody could figure it out because there were no indicators. Yet the guy ate ice cream every night and pounds of butter on his toast in the morning and we all knew his diet was kind of astounding but we didn't see the impact until later in time that it was actually having on his body and this is something I see in practice quite often I'm acutely aware of it from that obviously was a trauma trigger for me but in practice in people in general I see a lot of people you know you hear the old uh, the term that a lot of girls use is skinny fat well you know they're not fit they're skinny so they think oh I can eat whatever I want I'm genetically blessed but what they don't realize is that they're actually harming their body if they were able to do a living autopsy if you will, or some some amazing scans that we, we can't afford in, in real society, they would see that they were actually doing such a huge detriment to their health and wellness for the long, even medium term, you know, of their life cycle, plus, you know, not feeling well, having the insulin levels spike and drop and just not having overall wellness. So this article really hit home. And in fact, thank you for sharing it with me because I will use it to share with my clients to kind of back what I've been <laughs> preaching for so many years. <laughs> so so we can't really say the 80-20 rule applies anymore because, I mean, oftentimes people just think they'll exercise and they'll exercise the weight off. And, and let's just say this, when people do exercise excessively, you know, there are those people who can actually, who are super thin, um, you know, but they might be, you know, long long distance whatevers, whether they're long distance mm-hmm. runners, long distance cyclists, and plus have a genetic propensity toward being trim. Um, so there are those people, but is it fair enough now to say you need to do both? You need to focus on exercise and nutrition, maybe 50-50 as opposed to that 80-20. But the other thing is that exercise does make us hungry. Um, mm-hmm. And then it's about choosing those correct foods. But you're the expert in this field, Very- not me. I never found one ab in the kitchen, by the way. I want you to <laughs> I want you to know. Not one. Fair. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, we can talk after. I actually never found an ab. <laughs> Yeah, I never saw an ab in the mirror. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's for a later conversation. But no, you're absolutely right. Absolutely right. Absolutely. Of course. Um, yeah, it's 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 funny. So I do believe strongly, of course, as a fitness professional, that we need to move our bodies. Now, in my practice, if somebody comes to me and they're looking to lose weight and feel better and look better and self-worth and all this stuff and have better mobility and functionality um, and overall health, I don't want to tell them they need to go to the gym for two hours a day because that's not sustainable and that's not going to fit in with their busy lifestyle. But I do believe we need to move every day. So even if movement to you looks like a 20-minute brisk walk with your dog five days a week, that's fabulous. And maybe you could do a little bit of weight-bearing activity, even as simple as, you know, three sets of five squats, you know, same thing with lunges, some crunches to get some core strength. It doesn't have to be gym work and, and anything at an elite kind of level, something that's overwhelming and isn't going to fit into your lifestyle or something you want to do. So I never recommend that people need to do that. Now, that being said, as women, we need to be mindful that we do need some weight-bearing activity 
for the two main reasons in my from my perspective that are to save off osteoporosis, which is very real. And long ago, you know, we thought we had to drink milk in order to build calcium and bones. But the recent, more recent studies, should I say, um, have proven that we need to have weight-bearing activity to maintain bone density or build bone density. So, again, something as simple as integrating some lunges, some squats, uh, maybe if you have some small weights at home while you're watching TV just to do you know, some simple bicep or something that's going to challenge the bones. Um, the same thing with, you know, the loss of muscle mass. We all know that's a real thing. I think it's around 35 we start to decrease muscle mass. So if we can do something that can counteract that, and some people want to play tennis, some people have a sport of choice, but at very least having a little bit of cardiovascular and pulmonary function, you know, getting the lymphatic system moving by some walking and maybe just a little bit of weight-bearing activity is kind of, that. that, is, that will suffice. <laughs> for the again the the unspoken twenty percent rule, we could we can function at a good health um, with a fantastic diet and some movement. I just want to I just want to put for the listeners if anyone has a nutrition or exercise question for Anna B Fit, the number to call or text is one eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight one eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. If you are wondering if you're headed in the right direction, if you're having difficulty taking weight off or you have difficulty with osteoporosis or getting in shape or hot, you don't know where to begin, you've got an expert right here. You've got a professional who can help you to get in better shape and head on that direction for a longer life. Anna, something else I wanted to mention, there was another study as well in Canada about um, the modifiable risks, such as diabetes was one of them. Um, mm-hmm. it's not just living longer, it's actually living well. And so Better, risk of yeah. dementia is associated, yeah, associated with smoking, with diabetes and, and hearing loss of all things. And that's for another show, another segment, but mm-hmm. you know, the smoking and diabetes are modifiable risk as is hearing loss, but, um, those are related to exercise and nutrition because, you know, smokers tend not to exercise in the way that non-smokers do. Um, and also poor nutrition leads to may lead to type two diabetes, which is becoming fast and furiously a problem in this country. We used to think it was just the U.S. But um, what are your thoughts on those modifiable risks? Yeah, it sure is. Diabetes I see on a regular basis. It's usually in midlife, and that's pretty scary. And I mean, there's a problem, you know, almost like an epidemic with the poor quality of nutrition in our foods today. So we have to be mindful to eat a lot of whole foods, um, some good quality proteins, lots of vegetables, because I think the statistic is our vegetables today have 70% fewer vitamins and nutrient content than they did in 1930. So. Wow. Imagine we are we already don't eat enough vegetables, but imagine if you wanted to get the correct amount of nutrients in your vegetables, you'd have to eat a huge amount more. So, I mean, there's obviously supplementation we can do. I'm I'm more of the mindset of food is by medicine and medicine is by food. Thank you, Socrates. However, um, you know, a good liquid floral, so meaning a plant-based multivitamin won't hurt. You know, that's always something I will recommend to get a little bit more. But I think the rule of thumb, I mean, I do very customized work with my, my clients, but the rule of thumb, if people could be mindful to, you know, maybe pull on that 80-20 rule and 80% 
real food, find good quality lean proteins, you know, higher carb, um, higher complex carbs. So lower glycemic index carbs, meaning like a quinoa, brown rice, um, rather sweet potatoes rather than the white potatoes and the white breads. And that we all know that the white things are, I don't want to say bad, but maybe to be had in moderation due to their, how they break down so quickly and spike the blood sugar levels. And they just really aren't our friends systemically. Um, and the same thing with fruits. Fruits have sugar in them, and I'm not an anti-sugar police or anything like that, but eating a lower glycemic index fruit, so a fruit that's going to break down a little bit more slowly and release its sugars and be more absorbable from a nutrient standpoint is better for you. It's so like a strawberry, even the berries, um, strawberries, berries, apples, and then on the more higher glycemic index, like watermelon, it's delicious and yummy, but it's like sugar water in our, to our body. Right, exactly. It, I have a question for you quickly, if if you don't mind. Earlier you said, and I've heard this term before, um, you should eat, um, oh, oh, you know what? (laughs) I am blanking now. Um, Whole foods. It wasn't wasn't whole foods. Oh, it's a term that's used so frequently. And uh, anyway, I'm blanking on it. Forget it. All right. (laughs) It's Sunday night problems. It's okay. (laughs) And you said it. You said it. And I'm like, like, it's not clean foods, but it's, you know, people are like, oh. Anyway, go yeah, ahead. Carry on. Yeah, definitely more more whole foods. We tend to eat more processed stuff. Even um, you know, like my okay, best friend. That's what I was wondering. What is that definition of whole, whole foods? Food. So it's non-processed. So, that's what that means. Yeah. Non-processed. Even when my clients, I get them to you know literally you know send me screenshots of stuff in the grocery store. But if you find you can look at different salad dressings, and I'll just pick a couple of brands. Not that I'm promoting them, so a disclaimer there. Mm-hmm. But like Renee's um, Caesar dressing, if you look at the ingredients, it's very very clean. You know what they all are. And then if you look at a Caesar dressing by another more uh, mass-produced company, you don't know what half of the the ingredients are. So they probably are chemicals that we aren't aware of that are going to be harder for our bodies to process hard on the liver and hard on the kidneys That's what you said clean foods that was it it was clean yeah. foods like what are clean. clean foods okay cleaner easier to digest you know stuff that's going to fuel our bodies better and some people don't know that we aren't all we don't all have a nutrition degree we don't all grow up in a family that that has this background so sometimes we have to reach out to a third party like my just why I, I have a job um, to learn these things and I mean it is a learning curve and then there's also the mindset around it it can be so simple but it's it's so you know from society standpoint it's it's such a big issue and a big problem that people feel overwhelmed. And it's, it's and really like hard. It's yeah, hard. it's really hard actually for people to lose weight. My guest is Anna Reimer. She is owner operator at Anna B Fit, and we're talking about the equal importance of good nutrition and exercise. Anna, first of all, before we run out of time, because we don't have too much, what is the best way for people to get in touch with you and to participate in one of your many programs? Perfect. Yes. Um, well, you can find me. My name is Anna Reimer on Facebook or H-Y-M-E-R, LinkedIn, Twitter, um, Instagram, Anna B. Fit, like B-E-E, like a bumblebee. Um, but my uh-huh. phone number, you can also contact um, is 416-522-7470. And my website is Anna at Anna Reimer dot com. Or sorry, my email. Fantastic. Fantastic. Lots of so. <laughs> Yes, lots of context. Um, So let's say somebody out there is um, thinking, 
that maybe they've added on a few, like 19 pounds during the pandemic. (laughs) They're Mm -hmm. not feeling great. They know their trigger. Maybe their trigger is fatigue. Maybe they've been working a little bit too much. Um, Looking forward to taking some time off. And um, no, I'm not describing myself. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Trying to get some free advice here. Um, what what would you say? And, and now that you've read that study, um, mm-hmm. what would you what would your recommendations be for somebody like that uh, to get back on track and to help with their triggers? Many people have triggers, you know, other triggers. Um, yes, you know, going You're out actually, for dinner with yes. friends or whatever. Yeah, this is literally uh, what you just described is ninety percent of people I talk to. So this is that was perfect. Um, so, first of all, food. Food is the easiest one for me. It's not the easiest for other for people, though. So, again, a clean diet. So, you know, if you fill your plate with vegetables, um, like good quality vegetables and a lean protein source, that's fabulous. Berries, um, apples, good fruits as well. And then try and, if you're going to eat carbs, which most people do, you know, eat a higher complex carbohydrate. So the brown rices, uh, the sweet potatoes, quinoa, that kind of stuff, uh, as much as humanly possible. But keep the major portions of your food to be in the vegetables because we need the macro micronutrients. We really do as much as possible for our brains. Um, so that a ton of water right now, especially with people with extra anxiety and stressors every, and life is just so fast paced, not to mention the COVID challenges um, that are, we become systemically toxic due to external and internal stressors. So stressors meaning, you know, our environments or working from home or life is too fast paced. We have too many kids and we have a couple of relationships that are difficult and, you know, we're eating crap food on the go. So that's a lot of stressors. So on a cellular level our body stops processing nutrition like it won't take the nutrients from the water into the cell it just kind of locks down and it won't eliminate toxins so the whole cellular processing kind of grinds to a halt which makes us systemically toxic and over time we're at risk for disease and illness so we want Mm -hmm. things to be moving along properly so that we can rid ourselves of toxins the best way to do that is by eating easily digestible foods like i just mentioned and listed off some examples and to drink enough water that that starts to force the cells, doesn't matter what cell I'm talking about, blood cell, brain cell, lymphatic cell, to start to process nutrition and be able to push the hydration, can push out toxins to be excreted. So okay. that is huge. We've got about a minute left. How, okay. how would they start on exercise if they haven't for exercise, a while, if they've been a bit of a couch potato? For sure. I would say... We've got 30 seconds. Get out there and walk. It's counterintuitive. You think you're tired. You don't want to do it. Do it anyway because you'll have energy and you'll feel a million times better after. That's the biggest thing I can tell you. Counterintuitive, so you need to do it. And once you do it, you're going to be like, wow, I can't believe that worked. You got questions? She's got answers. The nurse is in for Nurse Talk. Welcome back. To the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. Currently in Canada, there is no National Day of Observance for Uterine Fibroids. July 21st will mark Uterine Fibroids Awareness Day in Canada as an opportunity to highlight awareness and the understanding of fibroids while encouraging Canadians to be informed about available resources and support. This is a very important subject about these non-cancerous tumors that affect upwards of 70% of all women by the age of 50. Joining me on the line from 
McGill University is Dr. Togas Tulandi. Dr. Togas Tulandi is the Chief of Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at McGill University Health Center. Good evening, Dr. Tulandi. Good evening. How are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining the program. Uh, uterine fibroids, it's not something we tend to talk about that much, yet so many women are affected by it. I was sent some sobering statistics, such as approximately 70% of all women by the age of 50 will be impacted with about 20 to 50% of women who will experience symptoms. I'm going to ask you what those symptoms are, and I can imagine that they would impact a woman's quality of life. Tell me for the listeners first, what exactly are uterine fibroids and what are some of the symptoms? Well, uterine fibroid is a benign tumor uh, from the muscle and uh, soft tissue of the uterus. It is benign. Now, the symptoms consist of, uh, let me tell you that most of the women with fibroid, they don't have symptoms. So a lot of women with fibroids, they don't have symptoms. They don't need treatment. However, they are with heavy menstrual bleeding or infertility or just pressure symptoms due to the large fibroid. Right. So those symptoms that you've just described, pressure, uh, that might impact uh, a woman's quality of life in terms of that pressure can be annoying all day if she's working. Uh, it also may impact bladder health. Um, in, in fact, they, she may have urges to urinate or may have frequency, which can also impact quality of life. Um, so with 70% of women experiencing or being affected by fibroids by the age of 50, but only a small amount who are having symptoms and require treatment, I would imagine that um, this is, you know, fairly, can be fairly debilitating for a lot of women, especially with the heavy periods. And what could heavy periods lead to for women? Well, because the, the, the first of all, maybe I should mention that 25%, over 25% of women over 35, they have uterine fibroids. And the main mm -hmm. Reason why they come to see a doctor is because heavy bleeding, leading to anemia. And also, some of them, they have a problem conceiving, so they have infertility. Those are the patients that we are seeing. After menopause, the fibroid shrinks and the symptoms becomes less. And most of the time, after menopause, we don't have to treat them because the, the symptoms become uh, better by itself, and the fiber shrinks by itself. And that's a long road between, um, you know, when a woman is in her reproductive years to postmenopausal, if they're experiencing uterine fibroids. It, it can also, Correct. as I understand it, lead to miscarriage. So, you know, you can imagine how disheartening and heartbreaking it would be for a woman who has been going through fertility treatments for, you know, oftentimes a year, two years, three years, seven years, you know, to potentially risk having a miscarriage given that there's a fibroid in there. That's, that's true. And may, the most common fibroid that's causing miscarriage and sometimes premature labor as well is the fibroid that is impinging inside the uterine cavity or 
inside the uterus itself. Right. So do fibroids affect uh, different groups of women more frequently than others? Well, it, yeah, it, it affects most um, African-American women. However, Asian or Caucasian, they can have fibroids as well, but it's more common in African-American women. And, and do the fibroids, or is a, is a woman um, diagnosed with fibroids or uterine fibroids earlier if she is a woman of color? Well, it depends on the symptoms. Uh, if they have symptoms, they do. Uh, we do ultrasound, and we can find the, uh, the fibroid on the ultrasound. Now, I was quite surprised by one statistic, um, but I want to ask about treatments. And the one statistic I was quite surprised at is that uterine fibroids account for 30% of all hysterectomies. And that's the second most common surgery for women after cesarean section. What are some of the other treatments? Are there less invasive, less severe treatments for uterine fibroids? Yes, I think, as, as mentioned before, that um, many women with fibroids, they don't need treatment. That's number one. Number two, there are medical treatment that we can give the, the patients. Uh, a simple, if, if we just to control bleeding, we can just give uh, a simple as birth control pill. Uh, but there are, the, there are the medications that are more specific to the fibroid, just to shrink the fibroid, uh, including, uh, we call it gonadotropin-releasing hormone analog or agonist or antagonist. Uh, and another procedure that we can do is, uh, if it is just bleeding, we can do endometrial ablation. This is minimally invasive procedure, uh, in and out, coming to the hospital and go home same day, or um, non-surgical procedure called uterine artery embolization. However, uterine artery embolization should not be done for young women who wish to conceive in the future because it might decrease their fertility. And why is that? What, what happens during that procedure that it may decrease their fertility? Uh, because we are blocking the uterine arteries and their collaterals or connection with the, the branches of the uterine uh, ovarian arteries. So the blood supply to the ovaries might decrease, it decreasing ovarian reserve. And uh, some women, if they do conceive after embolization, they tend to have premature labor or bleeding during uh, pregnancy. We call it postpartum bleeding. That, that is very important uh, reproductive health information for women that you just shared right there. Thank you so much. Um, so we, we're having uh, Fibroid Awareness Day coming up on July 21st in Canada. And um, Canadians are encouraged to share their stories, hashtag fighting fibroids online to help foster meaningful dialogue. What is the purpose behind this particular day? Why has it come to this? I think we have to increase the awareness of women. Uh, I'm seeing a lot of women with fibroids. And uh, just last week, I saw patients who, with anemia, uh, many patients with anemia due to fibroids, but they couldn't find the source of the bleeding. And it, 
is very simple ultrasound. We found that there's a fibroid impinging inside the uterine cavity. And so, so she needs surgery called myomectomy. That means they just remove the, the, the fibroid without removing the uterus. It was a large fibroid, by the way, five centimeters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And is that a significant surgical procedure? Are there risks for the woman who's going to have a myomectomy? Well, all surgery have risk, but uh, the risk is uh, minimal, uh, depends on the surgeon, depends on the pathology and the condition of the patient. But uh, today, we can do myomectomy by laparoscopy, so again, minimally invasive procedure. Patient comes usually in the morning, and she can go home in the afternoon. So we don't well, that's fin- need big cuts. That's fa- that's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your great work. I really appreciate it and for raising awareness about fibroids because I really don't think a lot of people dialogue about this particular uh, subject. And again, once again, hashtag fighting fibroids. Your new Canadians out there are encouraged to share your stories to help foster meaningful dialogue. It, when we share our stories, we empower other people. Would you agree with that? Yes, indeed. Dr. Talundi. Indeed. Thank you very much. Yes. You're very welcome. Well, thank you so much for your great work. I really appreciate it. And as do, I'm certain, the listeners out there who are getting this meaningful education. Thank you for having me. We were talking about fibroids, uterine fibroids, and the impact on fertility and also uh, miscarriage and how contraception is used at times for fibroids. And it made me think to look south on June 24th, 2022, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, eliminating the constitutional right to an abortion after almost 50 years. And, you know, the, it's this is a very political issue. The uh, Republicans feel that um, this is, they, they would like you to think that most abortions happen late in the pregnancy. Well, well, that's not the case. And it was very interesting, um, an article that I read recently in the Upshot, uh, in, in, in the New York Times, actually, um, the typical patient who gets an abortion. It might surprise you to learn that the typical patient who gets an abortion is already a mother. She is in her late 20s, late 20s. She attended some college has a low income, is typically unmarried, and it is usually in her first six weeks of pregnancy. And she is typically having her first abortion and lives in a blue state. I thought this was very interesting to see this because the Republicans, as I said, would have you believe, the Republicans in the U.S., and a lot of conservative people would have you believe through these news media, these right-wing news medias, that most women who have abortions have late abortions in their third trimester. That is not the case. And most people would have you believe that these are 10-year-olds or 12-year-olds. They're not. Six in 10 women who have abortions are already mothers, and half of them have two or more children according to 2019 data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And one of the main reasons that people report 
wanting to have an abortion after having had children is so that they can be a better parent to the children that they already have. And I would imagine that is from a socioeconomic perspective. The typical patient who has an abortion is typically in her first trimester. Much of the political debate about about abortion in America focuses on abortions that are performed late in pregnancy, but that's not the case. The overwhelming majority of them, 43%, in fact, of all abortions occur in the first six weeks of pregnancy. And get this, clutch your pearls, 92% in the first 13 weeks. Most women who have abortions are in their late 20s. In fact, 25 to 29, it's 29% of people who have abortions are in their late 20s. 28% are 20 to 24. It's only 9% of teenagers that have abortions. And 20% of 30 to 34. I would say that a woman in any of those age groups, with the exception of the teenager, is mature enough to decide whether or not to want to be a parent. Sometimes teenagers think, oh, a baby would be wonderful and, and, and perhaps the boyfriend will stay with me or whatever. 15% of women who have abortions are 35 years of age and older. So most people who have abortions are in their 20s. And around a third are over the age of 30. Most have attended some college. In fact, 41% have been to college. Most women are saying that they are delaying having children until they can finish school, have a career, and pay their own way or support themselves, which I'm a tremendous believer in. Never rely on anybody else for your income ever, your whole life. (laughs) Uh, Make sure you have some form of income because you know what? Somebody can, just as easy as they give it to you, they can take it away. Most women who have abortions are below the poverty level. They have a low income, 49% up to twice poverty level, 26%, and more than twice the poverty level, 25%. So most women don't have access to healthcare, access to contraception when facing unintended pregnancy, and they don't have the resources to have another child because it's getting more and more expensive to raise children. And it's incredibly expensive for poorer women to raise children, especially on their own. There are so many charities that help poor women pay for abortions in states where public programs do not. Another statistic that is sobering here is that about 58% have not had a previous abortion. 24% have had one before, and 11% have had two, and 3% have had three, uh, sorry, 8% of women have had three abortions. So People are not using abortion as a form of birth control. Most are unmarried. They're never married and they're single, and that's 46%. Nearly half of those who have abortions are single. A third are living with a partner, and 14% are married. You heard it. Cohabitating but unmarried people are overrepresented in abortion numbers, while married people are underrepresented based on their share of the population. Surgical abortions versus medical abortions, 56% 
of people have had surgical abortions. And women seeking abortions early in their pregnancies have two options, a surgical abortion or a medical one, in which they can take pills that can cause a miscarriage. That's going to change soon as well. It just got me thinking. If you're thinking that it is young women having an abortion when they're 39 weeks pregnant, think again. That is not what's happening out there. It's time for the Bedroom Bulletin. Welcome to the final stroke of the Sunday Night Hell Show. Maureen McGrath here hosting this program for you. As you know, I know, sexual health education is critically important, and it's all stages of life, all stages of development. It needs to start early. It needs to start with children when it's developmentally appropriate. It needs to carry on. I have spoken to many, many different groups of people, male, female, they, all sorts of people from different walks of life, all ages, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. The education isn't much different, but there are some places in the world where people don't get any sexual health education. That's where my next guest comes in. She is Bushra Moloch, and she is a sexual health educator in places you never even realized needed extensive education. Good evening, Bushra. Good evening, Maureen. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you so much for joining me. You saw a need in the world, in a particular place in the world, where sexual health education was even more necessary than in North America or Canada, France, Italy, because it's needed all over. But there was a particular place that it was really needed because the people of this particular place get zero education in terms of sexual health. Tell me a little bit about your mission in life. Absolutely. So uh, just to clarify, the place that we're talking about is called Bangladesh. And this is a small country next to India, nestled in South Asia. And it's a country with a population of, a, of about 160 million people. Uh, for reference, I was born there and I came to the United States when I was a baby. So I, I was raised in New York City. And I've known for a very long time that, uh, you know, sexual health, sexual health education does not exist there. And it did not exist in my household or any other South Asian immigrant children that I knew. Now, the mission that I have is to bring sexual health education to Bangladesh. I want sex overall to be destigmatized because this is a taboo topic and it's really something that's brushed under the rug and it's done much more damage than it than it's helpful. So I'm really trying to be that messenger for Bangladeshi now, Americans, sure. Bangladeshi people. Go ahead. Yeah. I, I'm just curious. Um, so you say there's absolutely zero, which is, you know, pretty similar to North America, to be honest with you. I see a lot of patients who say nobody ever mentioned sex in my household or or relationships for that matter, or anything, or conflict resolution or problem solving. Um, but sexual health, reproductive health is not, you know, talked about. So, but you, you say there's zero, there's nothing. And so why is there nothing in Bangladesh? I think it comes from a place of shame. Um, you know, it's a largely Muslim country, and even for the religious minorities that exist there, uh, there's a lot of shame when it comes to our bodies. You know, we're taught from a young age 
that, you know, we have to cover up, especially as a young girl, right? A lot of people um, either cover their hair or even if they don't cover their hair, we wear an extra cloth to cover our breasts once they start to grow, right? So there's a, there's a level of modesty that's expected. Um, even when it comes to our bodies changing, I mean, one of the most qu common questions that I've received is about masturbation. And interestingly enough, you know, I think there's sort of um, common idea that it's somewhat okay for boys to masturbate, but not women, of course, unfortunately, that's, I feel like that's a, that's a worldwide phenomenon. But, but in Bangladesh, particularly, even men will ask me, is it okay that I masturbate? And I'll clarify, yes, it's, there's nothing wrong with that. That's completely normal. And then they'll say, well, it's bad for my health. And I said, well, they probably taught you that because that's, that's what the common faith tells you, right? When you have a doctor who is, who's a practicing Muslim and then explains to you that, well, you're not supposed to do this because it's bad for you based on my belief system, right? I think that's one of the biggest issues that we have. When I think when religion um, takes a big part of the day-to-day -day, uh, living situation, it really brings uh, shame when it comes to our bodies and it comes to these, these relationships that we have. And it brings a plethora of problems, right? From intimacy, from not understanding your body. I mean, I can tell you right now, as someone who grew up in New York City, my mom didn't tell me what my period was. And when it happened for the first time, when I was, uh, I believe, 11 years old, I thought I was dying. So you had never heard of it in any other places as well, in school or from friends? Well, interestingly enough, when I was in the fifth grade, we had, um, we were supposed to have health class, but we, they, our teacher actually gave permission slips to all the other students in our class, and we had to have our parents sign it. Me and every other Bengali Muslim kid in that class was pulled from the class, uh, from the day of that particular class, and I never took it. And for whatever reason, right. my mom did not want me to learn. So lo and behold, a year later, I get my period, and I'm like, well, I don't know what's going on with my body. I thought I was dying. Wow. So Wow, which yeah. really denotes the shame and then the effect of shame on reproductive health. Um, I, I want to get back to, so doctors actually espouse no masturbation. And by the way, that's the most common question that I get, but it's slightly different with a twist. <laughs> I get that question, but it has a bit of a twist. Um it is how much masturbation is too much masturbation. So I gather we are a little bit more progressive here in Canada. Um, but no, I actually get that question from people around the globe as well. But doctors are actually saying to their patients, do not masturbate. It's unhealthy for you or it will lead to poor health. Yes. Yes. They believe that um, some common misconceptions is that it's, it leads to poor health that your penis will be smaller, which is completely untrue, um, and that it will uh, decrease sexual intimacy, which is also untrue. And, and so are people expected, uh, people of Bangladesh, and, and I, I feel like this is almost a ridiculous question because I know uh, patients that I have seen virtually around the world or in my clinical practice, they knew, they knew nothing and had to figure it out themselves. But Obviously, there's a population of 1.6 million, you say, in Bangladesh. Obviously, people are figuring it out and they're doing it there, too. Um, is that what they have to do? They have to actually figure out how to do this and yes. hope for the best? 
That's correct. And I wanted to clarify it's 160 million. So there's oh, a lot so of sorry. going I'm on, so but sorry. I don't think, <laughs> no, it's okay. But, but see, it's a small country and with a population that large, obviously, you know, they're having sex, but number one, it's probably not good sex if they don't know how to orgasm or help, you know, their wives orgasm specifically. But the other thing is, um, and this is one of the, one of the, uh, like the counter arguments that I've received on social media in particular. And they say that, well, our parents didn't need this. Our grandmothers didn't need this. Our, our, our ancestors did not need this. And to that, I say, well, if more information comes out, if we have, if we understand our bodies better, then what is the problem with explaining this? And one of the other biggest issues that I've come across, you know, especially since this is such a taboo topic, if we're not teaching our kids, um, you know, this is, this is what these private parts are called. This is your penis. This is your vagina. How are we supposed to protect them when they've been molested by someone in the family or someone close by and they don't know how to explain, well, they touched so-and-so part, right? So that's mm -hmm. another issue that we've come across. There's a lot of, um, unfortunately, there's a lot of sexual abuse that also happens. And oftentimes it's committed by someone in the family or someone close by. And it goes nowhere. It goes absolutely nowhere. And it affects a lot of girls and it affects a lot of boys too. Because oftentimes in our culture, we worry so much about protecting our daughters that we forget about our sons. My guest is Bushra Malik. We are talking sexual health education in Muslim countries like Bangladesh. Thanks so much for staying on the line, Bushra. Now, um, we had you there at a plateau when we left the program or left the last segment. We were talking about um, some of the questions that you get, and you have a large online following for Muslim people and people in Bangladesh. And uh, you get this, these, this pushback from people who say, well, our parents didn't need it. Our grandparents didn't need it. What is it that the parents likely had and the grandparents also likely had as well that these people are saying they don't they didn't need it we don't need it what are we talking about we're talking about pleasure and orgasms yeah it's so, a subject that doesn't get addressed in a lot of countries but yes so they are saying that they're they're assuming their parents and grandparents didn't experience orgasm or pleasure with sex I think that is, that's probably the common thing. And I think they also just want to clarify, they want to say that, you know, our parents were fine. So why do we need to have these conversations? And, um, you know, it, it's, it's disappointing, but it's also a, a, a counter argument that I expected, to which I also always say that, you know, just this year alone, or I believe it was last year, we found out what the entire clitoris actually looks like. For a long time, people thought it was a much smaller organ, organ than it is. And the fact that this is something that leads to women orgasming multiple, multiple having multiple or, orgasms, excuse me, um, I think that's a great thing. And it's, it's crazy to me when I post about the clitoris, for example, on Facebook in particular, and I've had men comment, I didn't know women can orgasm. And I've looked at their profiles because, you know, I, I like to take a look at my audience and see who's commenting on what. And oftentimes they're married with kids. And I think, you know, if you love your wife or you love your partner, wouldn't you want to make sure that they're enjoying the sexual intimacy that the two of you are sharing? So I'm hoping that this changes the narrative as well. 
Unfortunately, I think that's a lot of men out there. I mean, <laughs> there's been a lot of books <laughs> written about that. Um, but, yeah. uh, you know, if they don't know, if they've never had this education, if they don't know, if they believe that sex is for procreation exclusively and they've never been taught that it's for pleasure, isn't it wonderful, the work that you're doing and the fact that at least the husband is is saying, I didn't know my wife could experience orgasm. It Does it then lead to further, gee, I'd like my wife to be able to experience orgasm? You know what? I will say that I this forced me to also tackle my own biases because I've had a lot of men message me and say, hey, how do I know my wife is enjoying the sex that we're having? And that was really exciting because it made me realize, okay, I see that, you know, there's a large population of men who are, are really invested. And I don't blame them for not knowing what to do because, unfortunately, number one, right, there's no sex education. No uh, consumption of porn and that brings a lot of different problems because first and foremost unfortunately you know a lot of the porn that they have access to it's probably of women who've been trafficked or um, you know people who've been coerced into doing porn and porn is also not um, female pleasure centric so you you have all of these scenes where they're getting jackhammered or whatever and a lot of these men assume well this is probably what my wife wants and I've had to introduce foreplay into the conversation and clarify, you know, women orgasm from, most women can't orgasm from penetration itself. And I explained to them, you know, it's a good idea to engage in, um, you know, like using your hands, um, fingering, uh, oral sex. And, uh, you know, they have a lot of questions in regards to, to that also. Like they'll think, I've had questions like, well, if I have oral sex, will I get sick from her fluids? Or they'll mm -hmm. ask, um, you know, they'll ask, well, what am I supposed to do? Like, do I just, um, do I just suck on it? And I said, no, that's not what you have to do. So I really, I really have to get into the nitty gritty of what they have to do exactly. Because again, I, I don't tell them, well, what you're watching in porn is the right thing. Because I want them to understand that if you want a healthy sexual relationship, the first thing that you need to do is communicate with your partner. And I think that's an issue that, you know, that's not just common to Muslim and that's not just common to Bangladesh. That's an issue that, that a lot of couples have throughout the world. And, you know, I'm just hoping that we break those barriers and people start having these conversations. Mm -hmm. Or they can always empty the dishwasher. That's good for play as well. Quick question. Who asked you more? Who, from whom do you receive more questions? Men, women, or they? Yeah men mostly men, men. um and it, it this this has been one of the toughest um things for me because so so the character that i play on social media i call myself bushra and what that means is bushra sister so to them i want to be portrayed as this elderly sister figure who's really here just to answer their questions with um you know unbiased objective and I'm not judging them, right? Because again, there's a lot of shame back home. There's a lot of shame in my culture. Um, and it's been tough because I, I have a lot of men answering, asking me questions, and I want more women to feel uh, free to ask questions. And what I recently mm -hmm. did is I actually posted a picture of myself to Facebook. And I, I didn't want to do that for a long time for many reasons, because unfortunately, I have gotten threats of violence and, you know, people get people can get a little stalkery and, and scary on, on social media, but I wanted to put a picture of myself because I wanted women back home to see someone that looked like them handing out this mm -hmm. sort of information and someone who knows what they're talking about. And I want them to understand mm -hmm. that, you know, 
there's nothing wrong as a woman for me to want to feel pleasure. There's nothing wrong with me masturbating, understanding my body, and I should feel empowered to not only give myself the tools of understanding myself and my body, but also to protect my kids and also to improve the sexual relationship that I have with my partner. So I'm hoping that, you know, more women and, and girls in general follow my pages and think, okay, I feel empowered to, to know more about myself and my body. Exactly. It's wonderful work. Um, did that, uh, we only have about 30 seconds left, but did that help um, increase the number of women who reached out or are they still having difficulty getting past the shame and the guilt and the... Um, you know what? I think I have a lot of, uh, I, I get more emails from them now than before. So I think it's made a little bit of a difference. So I, I'm going to keep pushing through and I, I know that this is going to bring some change, which is what I'm hoping for. Outstanding. And how can people join your community? Where would they go? So we have the Facebook group, which is BD Sex Education. Um, I'm on Instagram. That's at BD Sex Education. And we can visit the website, which is BDSexEducation.com. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Bushra Malik. Wonderful work that you're doing. Keep it up. Thank Just you. A Thank little you for sex, everything, Maureen. Just a little sex tip for those guys that you're educating out there. <laughs> Just kidding. Bad sex for a joke. All right. <laughs> you you take care and we'll get you back. Stay safe, my friend. You as well. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.